Welcome to Measures of Truth, a His Dark Materials podcast. I'm Caitlin. I'm Alan. And I'm Anya. And today we're discussing Chapter 5, The Cocktail Party, Chapter 6, The Throwing of Nets, Chapter 7, John Fa, Chapter 8, Frustration, and Chapter 9, The Spies. For people who haven't read the books or just want a quick reminder of what happened in these chapters, we're going to go through them as briefly as I could summarize them while still hitting the important points. So in chapter five, Lyra settles into a routine with Mrs. Coulter. They go for lunches, buy new clothes, and meet lots of interesting people, all while Mrs. Coulter pretends to prepare for a journey north. Pan points out to Lyra that Mrs. Coulter is making a pet of them, but Lyra is too enchanted to pay this any mind. Mrs. Coulter decides to throw a cocktail party, and while preparing for it, Lyra upsets Mrs. Coulter, and the golden monkey attacks Pan and forces them to submit to her will. At the party, Lyra overhears a lot about dust and the oblation board, and realizes that the general oblation board is the gobblers, and that Mrs. Coulter is in charge of them. She also overhears that Lord Asriel is being held captive by the panzer Bjorna. After meeting a man named Lord Boreal, Lyra also realizes that they've been turned into a pet, and she might even be getting trained to steal children herself. She and Pan decide to run away right then. They pack some things and make sure to grab the alethiometer before sneaking out. And then in Chapter 6, Lyra and Pan wander around London for a bit, meet a creepy man who they then out-creep, and wonder where they're going to go. They are eventually caught by some men with throwing nets who are then murdered by some Egyptians that Lyra recognizes from Oxford. One of them, Tony Costa, takes Lyra and Pan back to his boat where his mother, Ma Costa, I guess she just doesn't really get much of a name. She's just Ma. (laughs) I don't know. If that's what everybody calls her, it's like Mrs. Costa, right? Like, I guess. I don't know. It's not that weird. It's weird to me, but okay. Um, So Ma Costa also recognizes Lyra. And they pretty much just put her to bed. In the morning, Lyra tells Tony her story and what she's found out about the gobblers. Tony tells her that the Egyptians have been hit harder than most people by the gobblers, and they are heading for a big meetup to decide what to do about the missing kids. Tony says they think the kids are being taken north, and then tells Lyra about some other scary things in the north, including a legend about headless ghosts that run around in the woods, and the pants, the Panzerbjörner, or the armored bears, as that's what they are and that those they are mercenaries who have hands like men and can work iron Uh, i can't believe you went with the headless ghost and not the like creepy lung wandering half dead ones so (laughs) i went with the headless ghost because it's important to the plot i was trying to hit the plot Uh, ones but yeah no there were some other creepy ones 
Lyra then says that if a rescue mission happens, she wants to go and rescue Roger, as well as she thinks to herself that she wants to rescue Lord Asriel from the bears. In Chapter 7, Lyra heads to a large meeting of Egyptians called a Roping with the Costa family. There, John Fa puts a plan into motion where some Egyptians are going to go north and rescue the missing children. Afterwards, he and an older, well-respected Egyptian named Farder Koram talk with Lyra, and she tells them her whole story. John Fa then tells her the story of her childhood and how she came to live at Jordan College. Basically, Lord Azrael is actually her father, and he had an affair with a married woman that resulted in Lyra. Lyra was being looked after by Egyptian woman at her father's house when the husband of her mother came to exact his revenge. Lord Azrael shot him. There was some legal trouble. Uh, and then Lyra was briefly placed with some nuns and then given to Jordan College to take care of. And if you'd like more information on that, you can read the prequel book called La Belle Sauvage. Her mother is... Dun, 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 Mrs. Coulter. <laughs> Lyra also tells John Fa and Fader Coram about the alethiometer, and Fader Coram explains to her how it works. The symbols have different levels of meanings, and by pointing to them with the handles that one can control, one can form a question by keeping the meanings locked in your mind. The fourth arm will then swing to the symbols that will form the answer. Fader Coram also explains that it would take a long time to learn all the meanings of the symbols and how to fix them in your mind, and you would need the books to learn how to do so. Before she leaves the meeting, Lyra asks who the Egyptian woman who looked after her was, and it is, of course, the person she has been staying with, Ma Costa. And then in chapter 8, Lyra sort of settles into life with Lord Azrael, like with the idea of Lord Azrael as her father, mostly ignoring her relation to Mrs. Coulter. And of course, starts making up stories about all the amazing things he's done and gets a bunch of kids to think that she is amazing just because of her relation to him. Oh, you're saying remembered wrong. Making up stories. You, you oh. mean remembering <laughs> in exact detail, right? The, <laughs> yeah, ov obviously, of course. <laughs> Where am I? Uh, she gets Sorry. more specific. No, that's fine. She gets more specific details about what happened when Azrael killed Mister Coulter from Malcosta, but still likes to make up some flourishes. She also spends a lot of time trying out the alethiometer, putting her mind in the right space, and turning the movable hands and watching the answer hand swing round with purpose. She doesn't get any meanings from it, but she enjoys it and keeps at it. Later, at the second Egyptian meeting, we go over how the heads of the families have gathered money for the expedition, as well as male-only volunteers to go on the journey. They mention that they have no idea what is being done to the children, but that their number one priority is to get them back, not to, like, get revenge or anything like that. After everything is settled, the leaders of the families go off to have a private meeting, and Lyra is upset that she is not a part of it and that she is not to go north. Tony Costa very patronizingly offers to bring her back a walrus tooth, and Lyra goes to knock on the door of the private meeting and makes a very good case for herself going north, but the door is basically shut in her face. I think we find out in that chapter that Lyra is blonde. Did you guys know that Lyra's blonde? <laughs> Oh my god, I noticed so much how blonde she was. She's <laughs> the blondest of all blonde children that have ever blonded. <laughs> I wonder if they'll get someone blonde to play her in the show. All right, all right, move on. Chapter 9. <laughs> chapter 9. In Chapter 9, Lyra attaches herself to Farder Coram in an effort to ingratiate herself with the people going north. Farder Coram is, of course, the man in charge of the spies, as well as the one who knows the most about the alethiometer. We learn how beautiful Lyra finds his cat demon and how much she wants to stroke her fur, 
and we learn that it's forbidden to touch another person's demon. So much so that it's knowledge that you're just born with, not something you need to learn or be taught. You would just never do it. Fartacorum and Lyra spend a lot of time using the alethiometer, and one time Lyra starts explaining the meanings she's been putting to things when asking a question. It turns out that she's been asking about some of the spies the Egyptians sent out, and that the alethiometer was telling her something about death. Just then, someone comes and calls Fartacorum to talk about a return spy, and we find out that he's the only one left alive. He gives some information about where they were looking, and then dies. Fartacorum realizes that somehow Lyra can use the alethiometer without the study in the books, and John Fa decides that she must come north since she might be able to use the alethiometer for information. Lyra and Pan speculate about what might be providing the answers, but they don't know. Lyra thinks it's a spirit. Lyra and Fartercorum journey to where they'll be getting on the big ship, and while she is asking the alethiometer what Mrs. Coulter is up to, she gets interrupted while deciphering the meanings, and is later attacked by clockwork spies that Mrs. Coulter sent after her. The spies have a spirit trapped in them so that the clockwork will never wind down, and they'll never stop hunting her. One gets away, presumably back to Mrs. Coulter, and one they trap in a round metal container. Then they reach the ship and set sail toward the north. Yay, the north. So did we all have any favorite parts from these chapters? Oh, yeah. My favorite thing is when Lyra gets a free cup of coffee, uh, getting away from Mrs. Coulter and all them, uh, from a creeper who like tries to like, you want some brandy, little girl? This is good stuff. She's like, no, I hate getting drunk. And he's like, oh, okay, okay. And then she like scares the crap out of him by telling him that, her dad is a murderer and like, oh, is that him? Is he oh he looks mad. I better I better go. And he's like, oh, oh yeah, okay. So <laughs> I I just really like how like on Lyra's character sheet, like her streetwise is like a 50 or something. Yeah. Like she's just like able to navigate the city with no problem. Well, and I love too that we actually know from the previous section that Lyra does not like getting drunk, or at least she has had one very bad experience getting drunk. Yeah, the best liars like bring the truth in, right? Yeah. Well, and that's one of the things I think that Philip Pullman is really good at is... um, Writing liars? Well, (laughs) that too. But I was going to say just like weaving in little things that seem kind of irrelevant at the time, but then calling back to them. Mm-hmm. later on in the book and so it really makes the world feel kind of like consistent and and the characters feel real yeah and there's really no waste you're just like every time when you reread it you're like oh 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 very well done mm-hmm. well like i can't speak to the rereading process but sure my favorite part was uh, well i have a couple uh, I liked the bit where Macosta was, you know, telling Lyra, because while she's staying with them, she learns how to run things on the boat and starts sort of thinking of herself as Egyptian and adapting their way of speak. And then Macosta sort of sits her down and is like, look, you're not one of us. You can't just learn our whole custom. And at one point, Lyra sort of yells out, I ain't never deceived anyone. You ask. And it, that's like the biggest <laughs> lie she's ever told. Yeah. <laughs> and also there's like, there's nobody to ask. <laughs> like, who's she going to ask? But in that same bit, so Makasa told her that she's got like witch oil in her soul. And it's it's a nice bit. I like it. And then I also, this really only comes from rereading of why I would enjoy this bit at all. But the description of Fartercorm's demon is very interesting when you think of people who've read the whole series before. It might sound very similar to the, to a description of another demon that we get later on, mm. and I find that intriguing. 
about why those two demons would be described so similarly, including Lyra's desire to pet said demon. I just love that he says that it's the color of autumn. Like mm-hmm. that is that is such a weird way to say it, but it's something that you can just instantly have in your mind. And it's one of those descriptions that is specific, but loose enough that each person is going to have a different kind of picture in their mind. So it mm-hmm. like it involves you as a reader. It's just a really deft piece of writing because like that seems really simple. That seems easy to picture, but at the same time, it's going to be different for every person who pictures it. Yeah. And so if we ever get to that bit on our podcast, I'd like to revisit that in three books time. (laughs) So my favorite part for this week, I think I'm basically channeling Kate uh, because it's basically like a love letter to Mrs. Coulter. Very nice. I particularly loved what she did with the makeup. Like, I just thought that was a really subtle but interesting character beat, how she like kind of left her makeup out knowing that Lyra would play with it and experiment with it, but not actually like teaching her hands-on how to do it, just letting Lyra watch her and then try and mimic it herself. It's like, it's just like very clever and and very, it shows how in tune she is um, with the way Lyra thinks and like how how well she's able to anticipate basically just like everybody. And I thought the party scene was really fun, too. Like, all of the characters and just, like, how everyone was interacting. I, there's so much with the, there's so much, like, good plot stuff with the Egyptians that I almost, like, forgot all the good stuff that we got with Mrs. Coulter at the beginning. See, I think for me, it was, like, I was taking a lot of notes at the beginning. And then right. <laughs> once we got to the Egyptian part, I, like, got more tired of taking notes and also I was like so absorbed in it I kind of right. didn't yeah but yeah no all the Mrs. Coulter stuff is really good you get to know her very well yeah or at least and like yeah the moment where she turns on Lyra is so fucking good mm-hmm. I don't have any firsthand experience with an abuser like that but I have secondhand experience and like the way uh, the Pullman captured the like emotional manipulation and like the hot and cold mm-hmm. is just like so spot on. Oh yeah. It's yeah. Mrs. Coulter is like chilling in that. Yeah. She's just so well drawn. It was funny in that part where she turns on her and, um, and she says like at the end, she's like, okay, then kiss me on the cheek. Yes. And, uh, oh my God. Like, That's so Ugh. fucking twisted. Cause it's like, mm-hmm. You're going to, like, do that to somebody and then make them show you affection. It is, like, the grossest and most extreme possible the way that you can exert your power over someone, right? Is to, like, hurt them horribly and then make them express affection to you. I also feel Mm -hmm. like it's just very Mrs. Coulter to get somebody, to manipulate somebody into doing what you want and scaring them and then immediately being like, and you must love me. Yep. Yep. It's messed up. (laughs) It's very messed up. She's like, she's perfect, right? You're like, at that point, you're like, get out of there. Like everything that Lyra does after that makes total sense. Mm -hmm. But yeah, it's very chilling. I think it's also very familiar to a lot of children readers, like you're saying, Anya, even though you don't necessarily have firsthand knowledge. But like, I think a lot of kids, like you get punished and then it'll be like, okay, give me a hug, the parent will say, or something like that. And even like in that conversation, like, 
there is a line that she says to um to Lyra and I've definitely said it to my oldest daughter when I'm like at my angriest uh like like don't you need to stop this fight because I will win this fight it will be like you know this argument I'm going to win this argument I've definitely said that to my daughter and when it came out of Mrs. Coulter's mouth I'm like uh I am the worst I am the worst parent <laughs> why am I like Mrs. Coulter that's not good well, I think that's one of the reasons why she's so interesting, because I think a lot of, on the surface, I think a lot of what she says and does could be interpreted as normal mm-hmm. until you mm-hmm. take in, maybe, like, take in what her demon is doing at that time, or take in, because there's that bit where the golden monkey, like, grabs Pantalaimon and Lyra is screaming, but if you just saw Mrs. Coulter, she would look like she was completely calm and mm-hmm. normal and everything was fine but it was it was the monkey who was who was you know inflicting pain right and of course like the demons are metaphors right for like on some level i mean in the book they're literal but they're also like you can read them as metaphors for like how that relation like what is the interaction going on in that relationship underneath yeah. the surface yeah you know that's interesting now that you say that, because so many times in our conversations, Anya, you've talked about like the difficulty of trying to like translate interiority from a book onto the screen. And like in this case, it's kind of literally a visual thing, right? Like, oh, yeah, I didn't even think about that. But you're so true because so much of the character's interiority is through the demons. Right. So like their emotional reaction just shows on the demon. Yeah, And yet that didn't help the previous movie. So we'll see how (laughs) the TV show goes. Fingers crossed. Yeah. You know, I like, I really want to go back and rewatch the movie because the more that I read this, reread this book and love Mrs. Coulter, the more I think that casting Nicole Kidman was actually a really good decision. Mm -hmm. Oh, I've said it before. The casting in that movie is amazing. It is amazing like it's perfect it, is it, it was it just the pacing that like didn't work it or was something? the writing that was bullshit okay the, the tone is wrong right it's yeah like, the tone is all wrong yeah. and okay but this is about the book not the movie we'll do a bonus episode <laughs> where we all get drunk and watch the movie <laughs> here here uh did we have any problematic things that we wanted to talk about or anything that we just plain old didn't like I'm I like I haven't okay so we talked about the book and I've read it the one time and I'm going through it again here and so when mm-hmm. I hear Egyptians to me I'm like oh wait whoa hang on who are we talking about mm-hmm. are these people Romani or or what and I can't tell who or what they are I can't tell if this is like some kind of mutation of a slur or like what what is going on, Caitlin? Who are the Egyptians? You know, I don't know much more than you. I will say, like, this is pro. So, Philip Pullman is, you know, an older white dude. And as mm. a white person myself, I can tell you that 20 years ago, I had no idea that Gypsy was a slur. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, even to this day, I will, like, very recently, I sort of said the word gypped. And it wasn't until it was physically coming out of my mouth that I was like, oh, shit. Yeah. You know, like... Y- for the what? longest time, I didn't even realize that that was where that came from. It was, yeah. it was like in in my head, it was spelled like J I P. I knew how it was spelled. It just wasn't until I said it one time that I was like, "Oh, that's part of the slur." 
you know? Right. That, and, yeah. and then I was like, oh, I wish I could re-say that sentence. Like, oh, shit. So I just think at the time, nobody was aware of it. Or, or white people, the people who are the, you know what I'm saying? Obviously, yeah. people who were being called that were aware of it. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. I don't. Yeah. It's a, a retroactive problematic thing. I yeah. mean, it, not that it wasn't necessarily yeah. a problem then, but like it's definitely something I noticed this time and didn't well, notice before. Right. Because it's not just the word because Egyptians is like as close to like Egyptians as it is to gypsies. That's and true. that's why I'm confused. But yeah, I'm like, who it, are these okay, people? But what makes it problematic, right, is that it clearly, I think, is a reference to gypsies because they're both kind of like nomadic, underclass people who right. are looked down upon. They're like culturally distinct and looked down upon by the majority populace um, and seen as like uneducated, uncivilized, and like discriminated against. And so... On the one hand, right, like, a lot of fictional works do, like, replicate the power dynamics of the real world in order to explore that and say something about it, right? And Mm -hmm. so Pullman is kind of subverting that on some level, right? Because he uh, created this people who are clearly, like, analogs to the Romani people in the way that they fit into society, but we get to know them on a personal level and identify them and find out, you know, like how uh, smart they are and how interesting and useful their culture is and how, even though it's different than the mainstream culture, like there are reasons for everything and it actually functions really well. Um, mm-hmm. and oh it's yeah, like they're good guys. A yeah. benefit. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I'm just saying like, yeah, like the word is a bit problematic because it's close to the slur, but I think, mm-hmm the way that he used them in the book is actually really good. And I will say that he has them calling themselves Egyptians, which is not something that the Romani do. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. there's that. Like, I still think to, to expand on my earlier point, I'm, I'm not trying to give him a pass or myself for not realizing it or like white people in general, because obviously we were putting these people down. Like we knew that even if I didn't personally realize it was a slur. Right. But within the world of the book, it's what they call themselves and they don't have a problem with it. I do still think he could have used a different word, you know, like it wouldn't have changed a single thing and it would be and it would be better. Yeah. And they're obviously like English people. They're from a place that does actually exist in our world in England, like or the fens that they talk about that they use. That's an actual place. Right. It's all, that's all a little bit confusing to what degree are they foreign at all? Or like their culture is, is it, are they Welsh or what is going on? But like, uh, yeah, I, I agree with all the stuff. I think, I think you're right, Anya. And I think, um, I mean, you're both right. I think that he's using the word as like a signifier of otherness. That -hmm. is like something we recognize. I don't have a big problem with it for that reason just like you said caitlin that they mm-hmm. call themselves that but then well, also okay so i'm gonna I'm gonna, f- I'm gonna float a theory yeah. what i like mentioned briefly before that egyptians is kind of like egyptians mm-hmm. and i mean like obviously that could be problematic in itself like invoking a group of the name of a group of not white people and using that label for a bunch of white people but in the sense that like you know 
the Nile River runs through Egypt, and it's like river well people. known that yeah. they're like river people, and then these people are river people, and like the Egyptians are in the Bible, and the Bible is clearly like oh, that's interesting. The foundation, you know, like I could see it as basically like a biblical reference to river people, mm-hmm. in which Applied case. To them. Yeah, and and because you mentioned on the previous episode, like there are so many biblical references throughout this book, mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right? Like assuming that in this world, their Bible also include the Jews being in Egypt, having an exodus. I think it it could actually not even be a reference to Romani people. Sure. Yeah, that's interesting. That, that's my my theoretical potential defense of it. Anyway, <laughs> I don't know that it needs defending because, like you said, they're colored so sympathetically um, and mm-hmm. we we spend time with them and we really come to like them as as people and as characters. And they are three dimensional and everything. Um, so if they're if he is using the slur that he's kind of like undermining it in exactly the the mm-hmm. way that you said. And I never want to like create taboos for writers and be like, you are not allowed to say this in this word, because I, I just think that's a bad cultural policy to have. Um, we should be able to interrogate all kinds of things. And then if you do it badly, you're going to get criticized. But I don't want to ever tell. I don't ever want to, like, advocate for writers to not be able to write about things. So, like, if he did mean to use that word in this way, then I think it's as well done as you could do it. Another thing that I do like about it is how Ma Costa does sit Lyra down and say, look, you're not actually a part of our culture. There's things about us you you couldn't know without growing up in our culture. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think that helps it. I, I do still think in like if he'd been writing them today, he would have been asked to come up with something different. Mm-hmm. Yeah, least, I would hope just because it is so close. And 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 I think that would have been preferable. But as it is, it doesn't I don't hate it. Mm-hmm. But again, this is a podcast of a bunch of white people, so maybe our opinions don't mean that much. Does my did my explanation about Egyptians and biblical references help at all? Oh I mean, yeah, no. I like, I like that. I like that. I do. I still okay. think even if that's what he was going for, just because of what type of people they are, like we were saying, how they're kind of nomadic and and um, underclass, underclass. I still yeah. think even if that's what he was going for, it reads like. The other way. Yeah. You know, so it, it just would have been better if it was different. Mm-hmm. But that's like 20 years later. Yeah. And like, who even knows? And it does, know. it does fit in with his style of having things kind of have slightly the same name. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, if it is a reference to Egypt or like you said, to the Egyptians in the Bible. Mm-hmm. I also, my mind just never goes to the Bible. Even, <laughs> even reading these books. And when I know that like, that's what you're supposed to do. I just I don't. My only no, knowledge that's... of the Bible is watching the Prince of Egypt. <laughs> that's a but that's great. Like my mind didn't go there and that's like yeah. seems to be the only place it lives and <laughs> and Anya pulled that right out and I I'm totally convinced by that. I think that's a really um good way to look at it. I have another if we're talking about problematic I forgot to put it down here in the notes, but problematic uh things from Africa. The um Oh, well, there's the, a ton of problematic shit about colonialism and like... Well, I was specifically referring to the the clockwork spy bugs. Oh, yeah. Because it is talked about how that's just some like, quote unquote, dark voodoo that she picked up in Morocco 
or that Farter Korm saw in Morocco, and he assumes that that's where she got mm-hmm. it from also. Mm-hmm. So that's not great. Yeah, it says, it's it's unclear, because it says, like, spirits, and I'm like, okay, what do they mean? But it, we don't really know. Right, well, I guess what I was trying to kind of bring up by just putting in the, like, larger problematic view of of, like, in the world, how like that England relates to colonialism, mm-hmm. right? There's like kind of a difference between things that are problematic in the book that the book knows are problematic and mm-hmm. things that are problematic about the book that the book doesn't know. And so I think like the word Egyptian is clearly something where like he, d- the Pullman did not know that it was potentially problematic. The book has no idea. Yeah. Whereas like, I don't know, the whole like mystical darkest depths of africa i think in some ways like fits in very similarly with all of the super problematic shit about them exploring north and the tartars and like all of that it's just kind of like yeah very typical edwardian style racism Mm -hmm. right so like i'm not i'm not surprised and i don't yeah i mean i guess it's definitely still worth pointing out but i think it's it's a bit different because i think it's meant to be problematic potentially i don't know about that just because it was written by an english guy and we don't know his views on the empire you know that's totally fair and um also it's just a stupid trope in books like it's a lazy trope Mm -hmm. of saying like i have this dark magical thing oh yeah it came from somewhere in africa no explanation needed (laughs) right Right. Yeah, because even now, I can tell you as someone who for the last year has been trying to study uh, like ancient, uh, well, I don't even, it doesn't even need to be ancient, but like pre-Muslim religions and mythologies in Africa, it's really hard because there's not, there's just not much. And what there is, is stuff written by like English and French people between World War One and World War Two. So it's like completely unreliable. And so like you can say I got this out of Africa and and not give any details because there's just nothing to build on. It would be like, you know, so it's like a a grab bag. You'd just be like, yeah, sure. I made that. Uh, I didn't make that up. That that just comes out of Africa. Prove me wrong because there's just not enough information. Um, And that's why I love reading uh, so much of the like afrofuturism that you've gotten me into like um uh oh yeah binti 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 and and, like some of the octavia butler because it's like you can tell that it's like oh people writing about africa who actually know what the fuck they're talking about (laughs) yeah and a lot of that stuff just wasn't ever looked into because it's just not about the bible or it's not about anything that europeans were interested in and so there's just not good records of it and yeah so maybe this is colored a little bit more by that all right so if we don't have any more problematic stuff in this section that we want to talk about let's move on to science which is (laughs) arguably anya's section but appears to have been completely filled out by me nothing to say today I mean, I'm glad that you brought up the planets thing. I would have said the same thing. I actually had to read ga- the original Galileo in college. Oh, really? Yeah. Wow. I'm not sure that Galileo... Well, we can talk about it. Why don't you, why don't you talk? <laughs> Just... I'm not sure Galileo happened in this world. Oh, yeah. Maybe, probably not. <laughs> Just to sum up what we're talking about here. At one point, 
somebody mentions about the five planets in the galaxy. And of course, five of the planets, Mercury, Mars, Venus, Jupiter, and Saturn, can be seen with the naked eye, depending on where they are. Um, the rest of the planets in our galaxy were all discovered with technology, telescopes, etc. So we can assume that perhaps telescopes were never invented, or at the very least, never allowed into popular use. Yeah. And I took that to be a reference to the Ptolemaic planets, um, which there were seven planets, uh, mm -hmm. but those included the sun and the moon. Right. Yeah. That's where we get the seven days of the week, by the way, which if you've ever listened to our American Gods podcast, that's where Mr. Wednesday gets his name is from one of the planets because the days of the week for the Romans were named after the all the seven planets. So, so if there were eight planets, would we have an eight day week? <laughs> uh, yeah, I guess. I guess we would. Um, you know, different cultures actually ha do have, well, they used to have uh, different numbers of days in, in uh, their week if they bothered to have weeks uh, or months. So, yeah. Yeah. yeah the, you're talking about, see, I know a little bit about this because I used to want to be a uh, astronomer when I was a little kid mm -hmm. uh, for like a long time until I got into high school, really. Um, and you but, discovered it was all math? Well, <laughs> I discovered that like I have this... That's what happened to me. Yeah, that's it's kind of true. I, I have this problem of um, transposing things uh, when I look at them that I can't control. And when you do that with numbers, it really does mess up your math. Um, mm. And so, yeah, I had to get more interested in books. But I know that um, there's a guy named William Herschel who discovered... Uh, the sixth planet and well actually his uh, sister Caroline uh, discovered it and he was like an amateur astronomer in England like this uh, is like a musician and he like invented the way that we look at the sky as a method even though he was not a scientist he was he he called it sight reading the sky um, mm -hmm. the way that you sight read music and his sister and him used to just sit out every night and they made telescopes in the day um, and the lenses and everything. And they helped to build like the largest telescope on the planet um, for a while that was in London. And yeah, they discovered Uranus and uh, the moon around it and a bunch of other moons. He discovered that like some of the stars in the sky, he was like, those are galaxies. Those are not stars. Those are like mm -hmm. whole other galaxies and all kinds of stuff. So like, Presumably, none of that happened in the magisterium. No, I don't think they would let it. So, <laughs> yeah, I guess we don't really have anything else to say about the planets other than they don't seem to know about a bunch of them. I mean, it's possible that they're not there. This is a different world. Huh. I hadn't even thought of that. I take it as a as a cultural clue that they're that, not yeah, interested. I, in. I take yeah. it as that also. They're I, not like, I like to outward. think that... Somebody created a telescope and discovered, maybe Herschel like discovered Uranus and then, you know, just got quietly shoved in a closet. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> so do you think they know they have like a heliocentric view of the world? Uh, yeah, she says. Uh, oh. oh, yeah, that's right. But it's like yeah. not super well known, right? Because Mrs. Right. Coulter has to tell it to her and she's like surprised, I guess. She doesn't believe mm. her. Yeah. Yeah, she thinks it's a good joke that um that the sun is in the center. So it, maybe it's a recent thing that the church has allowed people to talk about it, or it's just something that like only scholars know about because the general populace like isn't encouraged to mm -hmm. learn about science, like global warming. Oh. 
Exactly. It it seems like well, like we get the impression that all the scientists in the world, like everything that they do has to be approved by the church or at the very least has to be so insignificant as to not attract the church's attention. Yeah, I I kind of see it as the way that the Catholic Church used to operate, uh, where it was like there were these really hot debates going on among the different factions within the church, these like different monastic orders. Mm -hmm. They would be like these really hotly contested theological, like they were like name calling and like, I can't believe you would say this. Do you even understand what logic is kind of letters going back and forth? And to, but to the layman, like theology was like perfectly thought out and laid out and consistent from everywhere. But like in the background, there's these people like screaming at each other, like, I cannot believe we're doing plenary indulgences. Are you kidding me? Like, mm -hmm. who does this is this is crazy. This is not in the Bible. And so like. That's how I see the magisterium where the the academics are all like, oh, have you heard about dust? It's so incredible. Uh, the, you know, <laughs> and they're like very like, oh, the hoi polloi. They just they think that everything is flat and the, everything goes around the earth. What idiots. Uh, so like, that's how I see it. That the, There's like an inside and an outside. Yeah, that was one of the things that I thought was even more clear in this section was just how like the police, the clergy and the government are all working together um, in like a very coordinated fashion. There's like no separation at all. And the universities are somewhat independent, but even they like really feel that force and there's like no mm -hmm. way for them to to really avoid it completely. I kind of cut you off, Caitlin. I'm sorry. And I like uh, I agree with what you were saying, like in terms of releasing the information that the that the people that the scientists figure out, it would be like it has to get past somebody in the church to be like, yeah, I guess we can tell them we go around the sun. Like, who cares? Right. So the other science thing is the photo mill that Pantalaimon brings up and they bring it up as something that they saw in a church. And we're told it was a very holy object. And the the dude running the service says that it's like a metaphor for chasing the light and making, or wisdom chases the light or something like that. And I think as they're walking back, the scholar who brought Lyra to that tries to sort of talk about how it's actually science, but Lyra doesn't really listen. <laughs> yeah. So... He's like, I, it's a moral lesson, and then she forgets what the moral lesson is, but remembers everything else. Yeah. It's really good. So I had never heard of anything like this, so I went to look it up to see if it was real, and it was. It was a little bit difficult to find, because we don't call them photo mills, um, and I kept getting uh, galleries of photos of mills. <laughs> <laughs> So I actually did, I knew exactly what they were talking about because I, I had a feeling you would. seen them before. Yeah. Well, let me, let uh, me try to explain and, it the layman way. Okay. And, <laughs> and then, then, and then you, can, you can rescue me because it's going to be okay. bad. Okay. So we call them light mills or crooks radiometers. Is that their like real name? And I, I looked up a whole explanation, which I read every single word of, and individually, each word made perfect sense to me. <laughs> the sentences, I don't know about. But <laughs> basically, when the light hits them, because it ends up, oh, they're black on one side and silver reflectiveness on the other. And so the black absorbs the heat, but because they're in a vacuum, 
the vacuum wants to like spread everything around evenly. So then the heat starts to sort of creep around to the other side, which moves the gases around, which makes them spin. Wait, hmm. gases? But I thought I don't. It was I don't know. Like the, whatever, because it's not a perfect vacuum. So there's something in there. I don't know. I, I don't know what I just said. <laughs> <laughs> so okay, I'm, whatever. I'm it's called thermal creep, which I love. Yeah, I mean it's... the. I feel like the the basic thing is pretty intuitive, right? Like, you know that like a black car, or like if you're wearing black clothes and you go outside in the sun, you can like feel it absorbing heat much more than if you're wearing like light colored clothes or have a light car. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's just kind of um, that like <laughs> I'm not actually a physicist, but. You know, like photons have energy and force. And so when because the two sides of it um, interact with that force differently, it causes it to move. Um, And I can't, unfortunately, explain it in more depth than that. But it kind of it. I don't know. It just makes intuitive sense to me. If you uh, will link the article I read and then like a much more here is a video for stupid people like Caitlin, um, to watch. And they go into it. Uh, But the dude who created it very quickly came up with an idea of how it worked, and he was very wrong. And then, like, (laughs) a second dude came up with an idea of how it worked, and he was also quite wrong. But I think, like, according to the video I watched, that explanation is still, like, in the Encyclopedia Britannica. That's kind of cool, though, that the person who invented it didn't actually know how it worked. Yeah, he thought it was, like, he thought it was photons hitting it, and okay. then causing force. Okay, which, which is was not which what was it is. basically what I said, which was my sort of like intuitive, just sort of like looking at it and guessing how it worked. It is because of the light hitting it, but it's not because of force, because they figured out that it would be spinning the other way if that was the case. Yeah, I was actually just thinking that. But anyway. It's very interesting. Um, we will link things. It's funny. Apparently, Reynolds wrote a... Reynolds, uh, yes, that guy. A paper on it and he was the man who was wrong the second man who was wrong the second man who was wrong but a lot of people thought he was right for a long time i was yeah but i was just gonna say like he's actually a very famous person who whose work i actually use in my science huh yeah mm-hmm. yeah he does a lot of stuff about like um uh, like viscosity and like uh how <laughs> liquids function at different scales there's like a whole thing about reynolds numbers um, that like the smaller you are, you experience water in a very different way. Like how those bugs walk on water. Yeah. Yeah. It makes sense. The thing that I liked about this uh, was that this like purely scientific object uh, it is treated like as a very like mysterious uh, mm-hmm. religious artifact. But then we get other things like the alethiometer or these spying robots that are clearly mixed with some mystical element, but they're and then mixed up with like technology, but are treated as the way that we would treat like a toaster or something like that. Yeah. Like, yeah. like this magical machine. And they're like, oh, yeah, this thing, totally normal thing. But this other thing, like, oh, <laughs> it's, you know, like, it's I just know. interesting. I get like Pyra, Pyra, Lyra and Pantalaimon. Um, sit and, you know, think to themselves, who's answering when we ask the alethiometer a question? But, like, mm. nobody else wonders. 
Everybody mm-hmm. is just like, yeah, it'll give you a true answer. I'm like, how does it fucking know? <laughs> <laughs> who's, who's giving the answer? I mean, why don't you, you ever, people care? Have you ever used a magic eight ball? How do those work? Um, I don't. I, I mean, I, I've shaken an eight ball <laughs> and I've thought to myself, man, this is nonsense. <laughs> Probably not in those exact words, but you know. It's just good world building to me that he like the way those two things are treated by the people in the world. It like it just perfectly fits the way that he does things the same way that there's like, you know, as many Mm -hmm. talking animals as there are human beings on the planet. And everybody's like, yeah, of course, of course, there's talking animals like that's not weird. Uh, It's like, of course, this machine just tells me what the truth is like. Yeah. That's it's it says an alethiometer. I mean, come on, that's what it's for. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I don't know. It's just really smart. Uh, I don't I don't find that in fantasy with alternate history, you get that kind of like contrast done that well very often. So it's just really good. All right. I think that sums up this week's sciencey section. Do we want to move on to everyone's favorite religion? <laughs> We all love religion. Yeah. It's not boring or controversial. <laughs> we got briefly uh, a mention of oblates. Um, yes. I was, I was hoping yeah. you would explain this because I've never heard this term before. Well, to me, the way that he uses it, I was like, huh, I, I don't doubt what he's saying. Mm-hmm. But to me, an oblate is like, uh, maybe Anya has dealt with these kind of people where like for academic institutions, sometimes there's like an maybe this doesn't happen in science so much as the humanities, but sometimes there's like a person who's like an expert on something, but they're not part of the academic system or they never went to college. They don't have any degrees and they like, but like all of the people who are experts in a field will like go talk to that person and be like, how did you learn Sumerian or something like that? Hmm. Uh, you normal lay person. And like an oblate is the same kind of thing, but to the church, they're like not, in the church like they they're not a monk or a nun but they like help out with stuff all the time to me that's what an oblate is so i was like oh i never heard this other thing about like people definitely sent their kids to go be monks and nuns and stuff that's Mm -hmm. totally true i just never heard that word used for it so i i don't know like i'm sure that he's right about that it's just i learned something new by reading the book there because that's not what that word means to me it might be one of those English North American things too. Oh, true. I didn't even think of that. Not that yeah. I, 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 I haven't looked it up or anything, but it might be. Yeah, maybe. Um, but there's that's definitely a thing that people did was send their kids to, uh, you know, like become priests or whatever. And it's mm-hmm. funny because Lyra is an oblate, uh, kind of twice. She's dropped off to with some nuns Mm -hmm. and then her dad is like hell no i'm dropping her off with some uh uh, pencil heads yeah Yeah. and then i'm gonna yeah that's i'm a dad peace out um so (laughs) i i thought that was interesting that she's like i don't want to be one of these oblated kids but it's like you've been oblated your whole life Um, that is an interesting way to look at it i assume this is the same word as obligation uh like the root word yeah um so I don't know. It's interesting vocabulary, at least to me. Uh, it's something that I didn't know about. Another brief thing that we get is a mention of Zoroastrianism, uh, <laughs> where 
like I think this is weird uh, where they're talking about dust. They're talking about the possible origins of dust. They're talking about like elemental particles that are undetectable. And then they bring up Zoroastrianism in the same sentence. And I'm like, uh, what? Like physics and uh, this obscure Persian religion. I'm not sure what they have to do with each other. Even in the sentence, like he talks about the dark principle, which is not a thing that I know of from Zoroastrianism. But uh, but I just thought it was weird if if anybody's interested in what that religion is, just the high notes of it is... Uh, there's like a god of light and a god of well, not a god. There's one god, uh, so that's pretty distinctive uh, for an early Persian religion. Some people think it uh, like originated the idea of one god, and that the Hebrew religion kind of like took that element and ran with it. Uh, but there's like a lot of people don't agree about that anymore the way that they used to. Anyway. Uh, so there's a God of light who created the universe and everything. And then there's another guy who is like the Lord of darkness. These two don't like each other very much. Uh, huge surprise. And then uh, they fight all the time. Uh, and basically like human beings, what we think and do, uh, can have an effect on this fight between light and darkness. So if you like do good charitable kind things and you think nice thoughts this like creates angels in the spiritual world uh and then the opposite is true so you like do terrible things it creates demons and these things last forever um so long after you're dead and your actions are you know over with they persist eternally in this conflict and so the degree to which humanity can improve and like be nicer to one another will will determine the fate of the war between light and dark. And this was like one of the first religions to worry about uh, your ethical behavior as a practitioner. Like most religions didn't care how you acted uh, as long as you like did your sacrifice. Uh, it didn't matter what you think or felt or how you treated other people. But Zoroastrianism cared a lot about that and very little about the rituals and stuff. So that was a big sea change. I've never heard of it before. Yeah. It's, well, it's, uh, it's very, very tiny now. It only exists in like Southern India because it's, you can't convert to Zoroastrianism. You have to be born into it. Mm -hmm. So as that population gets smaller, the religion is dying out. Uh, where, where does that come up in the book? Like, I presume at the party. I just don't remember the sentence. Sure. So there's that guy that's like trying to impress the, um, the reporter lady, uh, the reporter lady, and I think they're having a side conversation with another dude mm -hmm. about dust. And the guy is talking about, well, I think because of the dark principle, and he's like, the Zoroastrianism heresy. How could you? And he's like, well, it's not a heresy if this theory is correct about Rusart par particles or whatever. What are Rus they called? Uh, Rusikov particles, I think. R Rusikov, yeah. Which is just it's dust. Yeah, it's dust. And and he's like, well, if this theory is true, then Zoroastrianism is true. And I'm like, that that does not follow. That's not <laughs> that's not logic. Uh, Although I guess if you're raised in a world where science and religion are one thing, you might put that together with the dark and the light, with the, the yeah. dust being with dark matter. We haven't really talked about dark matter yet, but whatever. Uh, within the that's basically of the book. what he's describing, right? Yeah, yeah he's because he's saying particles that don't interact with anything else. Uh, yeah, yeah. 
and aren't detectable. So like, but I don't know what that has to do with Zoroastrianism. Like, uh, because like I said, that's, I'd explain the whole theology of the religion pretty much. I mean, not the fine points, but like the 10,000 mm -hmm. foot view. So yeah, I don't, I do like the idea that like the scientific imagination is limited by the kind of, um, religious framework around it the same way that there's only five planets you can't like think outside of that boundary because you know the the bible doesn't talk about more than five planets or something like that so you're like why would we look for more planets we <laughs> right. know where the planets are yeah so like that's i agree that like that's good that it illustrates the way that these people think uh it's just that their thinking is wrong yeah even even like the smart educated scholar people are still thinking of science in terms of religion yeah so that's interesting which yeah which is perfect for this setting right yeah um i've i feel like i'm just talking and talking to you if you guys wanted to say anything else i think i studied it a little bit in high school uh with like a world geography class where we had a religions unit but it wouldn't surprise me if it came up because it's like that connection between it's again, it's just like the African thing. Like Europeans don't care about African religion because it has nothing to do with the Bible. Mm -hmm. But Zoroastrianism is like, there's one God and they're like, Oh, this is interesting religion. This religion here, they isn't they're there, onto something. Isn't there something about fire? Yes. Yeah. The, the Ahura Mazda is the, like the god of light and he uh has a fire that is like the origin of the universe and there's always a fire that has to be in the temple because of this and to this day the same fire that um the prophet zarathustra lit is still lit today in the temple way down in india okay not in persia anymore the the fire sounds familiar i've heard about yeah. that before that, say, that's, that's ringing like, some bells the, the one thing yeah if there's one thing that you know, it's like, there's something about a fire. Yeah. Yeah. That's why the other guy, the Angramainu, who's like the Lord of Darkness, that's why he's so bad, because like he's trying to put out the fire, and then there would just be darkness. Um, yeah. So that's... Um, it, it always... Whenever I read about that stuff, it always makes me think of the Silmarillion. Um, I can see where maybe it would, but this time it actually sounded very Game of Thrones. Oh, yeah. Sure. With the Lord I mean, of Light you know, and the fire and everything. Mm-hmm. It's probably an influence. I wouldn't be surprised. Martin yeah. knows his stuff too. The other so the big thing that I wanted to talk about here is the way that Lyra is kind of developing. And um just like the last time that I talked about, there's kind of these two in, in exactly the same way as the Zoroastrianism, there's you know, where they got this religion and then the guy is like, and that explains uh dark matter. And you're like, what? <laughs> You have, on the one hand, I think you have uh, some Freudian stuff going on. And then at the same time, uh, he has some Calvinist stuff happening. And they are like two explanations for the same thing in the story. So we talked about Jung last time. And you mentioned, Caitlin, that he studied under Freud. And probably everyone has heard of Freud, I would think. Um, yeah, I also had to read that bitch in college. <laughs> <laughs> this yeah. is my contribution like, to the conversation. <laughs> I feel like even if you didn't have to read Freud in college, you still just know so much about him because I get that he was very influential, but he was also very wrong. 
it's like one of those things where you create an entire field of science and like, yeah, you got it all wrong, but at he, least he made it so that it could be gotten right eventually. Yeah. But yeah. That <laughs> is such a man, white man failing up perspective, but sure. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I wonder if there would be therapy, though, if Freud hadn't, like, it's not like he didn't do science, you know, he didn't, like, yeah. come in with a framework mm, and then, like, try to I feel like, like a woman would have figured out therapy eventually anyway. Like, we pretty much talk to each other all the time about everything. Oh, I, no doubt. Like, yeah, I'm, I'm not saying, like, yeah, nobody <laughs> would have thought of this. No, you're totally right about that. But, like... And I think there would have been a lot less penises than what Freud thought was going on no. uh, in people's heads. <laughs> Only a man would think like the entire area of science had to do with penises. <laughs> but uh, so, yeah, clearly we all know who Freud is. He like created psychoanalysis and um, and, you know, modern therapy like kind of evolves from that. But everybody thinks that his ideas are pretty much bunk uh, these days. But just like Young, I mean, everybody thinks that's bunk too. Uh, writers love to use this stuff because it's like, uh, it's real crunchy, but it's also like a solid framework that is so easy to just like slap onto your character's psychology. And it's easy to understand. So like, that's perfect when you're trying to write a novel. Uh, and so the big thing, the big Freudian thing that I see going on with Lyra in these chapters is this idea that Freud had called the ego ideal. And so like, as you're developing as a young person, you have like, uh, you, you're trying to like model your behavior on somebody else. And so that's Mrs. Coulter, uh, as we start out here, mm-hmm. so the whole thing with like putting the makeup on and like, you know trying to be like her and all of that stuff is exactly the Freudian idea of the ego ideal where you have all these impulses that he called the id and then your ego develops purely to like try and satisfy all of your uh, desires for like food and friendship and comfort and all of this stuff. And that's exactly what we've seen from Lyra since the beginning of the book. Like she'll just do anything, you know, she'll tell any lie. She'll sneak around. um, She'll play all day long and blow off her studies and stuff because that's what she wants to do. And it's not because of what she thinks is right and wrong. She's not thinking about that kind of thing at all or what she should be doing. She's just trying to get, the things that she wants. Mm -hmm. And now she's like developing to the point where she's trying to think about like, who do I want to be? Who do I want to be like? And so she's growing up a little bit here. She rejects Mrs. Coulter, but then her ego ideal switches to the Egyptians. Then she wants to be Egyptian. Then she thinks of herself as like, I'm practically Egyptian after two weeks. Uh, (laughs) And she's like very intensely uh, invested in John Fa by the end of the ninth chapter and in Father Quorum and the way that they see the world and how they see her and she wants to not disappoint them. Uh, So all of this stuff is like very Freudian in, in the way that you're looking for role models and you're constructing your personal morality and sense of who you should be in terms of imitating those people. Um, And it also helps like in the Freudian sense of like she, so she finds out who her mom and dad are here 
and Freud had this big idea that the that a daughter would be very invested in her father, like wanting his attention and his approval and all of this stuff. And the way to get that is to make the ego ideal in the image of the mother because the father loves the mother. So you should be like the mother in order to get the love too. Um, <laughs> like, listen, <laughs> this is, I'm just explaining what he thought. I don't agree. Um, but you see that she's doing that, and and she constantly has Lord Asriel up on this pedestal, right? And when she finds out that he is her father, she's very happy about that. And I think that the degree to which she invests in the Egyptians has something to do with the fact that they closely ally themselves with Lord Asriel. They're mm-hmm. like, he's our buddy. We love him. Uh, and so she wants to be like them because they're... Not in a conscious way, but because they're closely allied to Lord Asriel. And so if I'm Egyptian, he'll like me too. He won't want to break my arm and stuff. Um, God, I forgot about that part. Yeah. Never forget that Lord Asriel killed a dude and then put his daughter on his shoulder and was like, la, 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 la. Everything is great. I'm not a psycho. Yeah, we'll talk more about that later uh, when you're done with your Freud because i feel like that does merits more discussion oh definitely (laughs) yes um so we've got the ego ideal here on one side telling you who you are but on the other side we have um john calvin good old pope calvin in this universe anyway uh (laughs) in our universe john calvin had this idea Uh, That was like, you know, you have like a a sense of hearing or a sense of touch. He had this idea called the census divininitis, um, the sense of the divine that every human being has built into them, a sense of God and an ability to like perceive uh, the divine will of God naturally, the same way that you hear things and see things. um, It's just built into you. And you see this uh, in the way that Lyra uses the alethiometer. Um, She literally says that, like, I feel it. It's like walking down a ladder in the dark. Um, I just put my mind down another level and I can feel it. Uh, And to me, this like screams the census divinitis that your. So last time we talked about teleology, how your phone is not a banana. Mm -hmm. Uh, and how if you're trying to use it that way, you're not using it properly. Calvin believed that every person also has a teleology. God created you for a specific purpose. So in the same way that your smartphone is calibrated to do what smartphones do, you are calibrated to do the thing that God needs you to do, like reading an alethiometer. And your census divinitis will lead you along your teleological path. And so you naturally are interested in science or in books because that is what you are made for. You hear people say this all the time, like the thing that you're here to do, right? Your special talent that no one else has. Mm-hmm. This is the census divinitis. And this is, you're supposed to look within you and to commune with God in order to find out who you should be and not look externally the way that Freud would want you to, to pattern yourself on what other people want you to be. 
But Lyra is simultaneously doing both of these things to discover herself. Uh, she is reading the alethiometer in an intuitive kind of spiritual way and simultaneously like psychologically projecting her behavior on, you know, like the behaviors that she wants to have on Mrs. Coulter and then on the Egyptians. And so what I see here Pullman is doing is like combining these two. One is a very rational framework and the other one again is a very irrational framework. Uh, and then he's simultaneously, I really like this as like a writing craft thing. He's invoking this idea of teleology that fantasy does all the time. Like in the Harry Potter books, there's always like a chosen one, right? Yeah. Like, so that was something that I was going to bring up because, I mean, I think the the contrast you're, you're making is super interesting. Mm -hmm. um, but I think like a more straightforward reading of Lyra being so intuitively good at the alethiometer is just that kind of like YA fic like preternaturally talented young person destined to save the world with their magical talents but that thing comes from this I see okay like so if you are reading fiction and you think like oh this is like a cool non-christian like no <laughs> this is a very Christian, like when Hagrid says to Harry, like, you're a wizard, Harry, like he's he is telling him, like, teleologically speaking, you're a wizard. And like the fact that you can't control your magic and don't have a broom and don't have a wand, like that means that you are a bad thing that you are and the degree to which Harry like corrects all of those problems is the degree to which the world improves within the narrative of the book and like that is the idea of Christianity and uh, like the degree to which you maximize your teleological potential is the degree to which like that's what paradise is when Jesus comes back right that's what it's like he is he becomes the king of the world the way that he's supposed to be and you like become the ultimate christian that you're supposed to be will make the world a better place if that makes sense uh, so the, like this idea that we're here to do a certain thing is like a very religious idea that is so deeply encoded into our culture that it gets re-expressed in secular even non-christian like anti-christian ways mm. uh, in fantasy fiction like as a genre but i think that pullman's aware of that and that he's like purposely using it both because it's familiar to fantasy readers but also to like explore that space of being the chosen one and being like he's directly linking it in my mind to like calvin with this sense of he's literally saying like i feel the truth as i step down like that's a mm -hmm. very calvinist idea i have things to say about this but they're based on information i have from later books so <laughs> so we'll save that for later if i remember to bring it up <laughs> i'll try and remember i'm sure i won't stop talking about calvin because yeah. it's like so <laughs> important i mean he's the pope so he's kind of a big deal <laughs> calvin is so important to the entire trilogy like his idea of the way the universe works and stuff is like central Pullman is it's not an accident that this stuff is in here. Okay, so do we want to talk more about Lyra's parents and that whole thingy? 
Sure. Mrs. Mm -hmm. Coulter and Lord Asriel. Ma and Pa. And so you know that Lord Asriel is her uncle. And the definition of uncle is that you're the brother of one of the parents. But he can't be his own brother. So therefore, that's why this book is banned by churches. (laughs) Yeah. I had Uh, no idea where you were going. In a a stupid direction. That's where I was going. Sorry. Uh, Maybe I have a way into it. Oh, no, we're going to keep that. (laughs) Oh, God. (laughs) Uh, So obviously, right, like this is a big bombshell that these two main characters that are now set up as nemeses or were already kind of set up as nemeses are now even more nemeses based on the fact that they're Larry's parents and had this big falling out. I thought it was kind of interesting that we get all of this through like kind of a straightforward expositional monologue by John Fa. Mm-hmm. And like, it's not super elegant, but it's kind of functional. And I think I like it. I don't know. It's so <laughs> I think Pullman set up this like really interesting, intriguing world that was like, full of these like mysteries and then a third of the way through was kind of like mm, no actually like i just need the reader to know what's happening and like he decided to <laughs> end all of that intrigue and then just get on with the adventure and i don't hate it as a decision or like a strategy but it does feel kind of weird i don't know maybe I think especially in like a YA context, it makes a lot of sense because you can't necessarily expect like a a 9, 10, 11 year old to like keep track of all those threads and like follow all of that. So like it makes sense to have it just kind of like explained in a fairly straightforward way. But I don't know. I just kind of wanted to get your take on that and see if it struck you as like a weird narrative strategy. Hmm. I can't I can't give an honest answer on that just because I've read the book so many times that I go into it knowing that that story and knowing that they're her parents. I see. Well, so you know? I definitely it's I read this book so long ago and I guess watched the movie too. Like I definitely remember that Mrs. Coulter was her mom and Lord Azrael was her dad. Mm-hmm. Um, but I forgot that we found that out in like a sitting around the fire monologue type moment. Right. Um, rather than, like, something that Lyra kind of discovered on her own. Right. I think, I'm not sure if necessarily the, like, it's almost like a flashback. I don't know if it's necessarily written that well, but I think it's important information to have, for, for Lyra to have at that point to sort of motivate why she's going forward with the things that she does. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I saw that connection that I talked about where like, to me, this was like, oh, this is Freud. And then followed right on the tails of that is like the census divinitis thing. So I feel like as her, she's like evolving, right? She's going, she's very childish in the beginning and then she's becoming more mature and this is a stepping stone to maturity. And so, and this is also like, this is totally a trope, right? The secret, uh, like the fantasy hero finds out that secretly your parents are like the rulers of the world. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, kind of a thing. Uh, but I really like, I actually really like the delivery of this because it is a story and stories have been so central to who 
Lyra is as a character, but of course all of her stories are like absurd and like um, grandiose. And this one is like what John Foss says. This, this is a true story. Um, you know, like a story that is true. Yeah. I also, you, or you go. Well, I was just going to say, based on some of the things that you were saying earlier about uh, Freud and Lyra's, you know, figuring out who she was, I, I'd be so very interested to see how she turned out if none of this had happened. <laughs> you know, like if she was oh, just like if mom left. and dad had been at home. Well, not the, sorry. If none of the like adventure here had happened, if kids had not uh, been I see, I see. maybe like Lord Azrael and Mrs. Coulter died when she was young and she was left with Jordan College. Mm-hmm. And none of this happened, and she was just left to grow up wild and become as much of a liar as her mother is, you know? Like, <laughs> I'd be, like, I'm very, because you were right in saying that she doesn't really care about right and wrong at the beginning. It isn't until, like, Roger is taken that she's like, no, nobody's taking people. I'm going to go save my friend. And, that, right. and then she sort of develops a sense of right and wrong. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that is something that Mrs. Coulter is lacking in. So I would be interested to see what Lyra would have been like if she had never really developed that sense of right and wrong. Yeah, I feel like both of her parents think of right and wrong as like a rule set that is like, it's not an internalized, like, I feel bad. It's like those people over there care if I do X, Y, Z, not like I have a moral duty to do X, Y, Z. Right. Yeah, I'm curious what you think the the story kind of reveals about Lord Asriel and how truthful you actually think, like, John Fah's recollection of it is. Because I guess when I was reading it, it, I, it feels like it came across that Lord Asriel actually, like, felt very protective and and, like, almost affectionate towards Lyra. But then, like, in the context of everything else, it seems more like he just sees her as like a possession and he didn't want someone else to take that possession from mm-hmm. him. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I kind of feel like the story is told to make Lord Asriel look better than he actually is. Well, A, I do think they're, uh, spoiler is doing that for a reason. Yeah. And B, it's really easy to be affectionate towards a baby when you've got somebody else looking after it. That's true. And then, you know, before it, like, grows up into a child who asks questions and does things. And really needs to have her arm broken. Yeah. <laughs> so I can see where maybe he's like, yeah, this baby, that's nice. And then he's like, wait, I, I'm not a dad. Fuck this. <laughs> you know, and gets rid of, not gets rid yeah. of it, but you know what I mean? Gives her away, basically. So it might be a bit of both. It does kind of put some of the party scenes like a bit more into perspective because I think when you're first reading it and everyone is like oh so like you and your mom and she's like she's not my mom and everyone's like huh oh is that the case you know like right yeah um, when you first read it you interpret that as just like people assuming that she's her mom because they're living together but how much I mean it seems like they're the falling out between Mrs. Coulter and Lord Asriel and like the murder and everything was pretty well known. So I guess like everyone like genuinely just knows that Mrs. Coulter is her mom. And then it's like, well, it's not my job to break this to her. Yeah. And there's mm-hmm. that bit when she's talking with the scholars where 
the women scholars where Mrs. Coulter says, oh, Lord Asriel was just telling me that. And one of them gives her a look. Because, oh, I like, didn't remember that. <laughs> Mrs. Coulter and Lord Asriel have not spoken for years and don't like being in the same room. And one works for the church and one super doesn't. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And it's it's also, I think there's also like a background thing there. You can like read a background motivation where they talk about the punishment for Lord Asriel was that all of his holdings were confiscated. And John Fa just says, like, casually, he had more money than the king. And it's like, uh, like, clearly, this incident was used as leverage to, like, kind of um, take out a political rival on some level to, like, mm-hmm. oh, we're going to neuter Asriel politically uh, because, like, this is a good way to do that. And then, you know, he just does. That's why he has to go from place to place begging for money to do his research mm. is because of this entire situation. Yeah. Although even you do hear in one of the chapters with the Egyptians, they still have all these good thoughts about him and the things that they that he has done for them politically. Mm-hmm. So he didn't so lose he's all in the his house power. Of boards. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And he somehow kind of clawed his way back and managed to. Uh, keep his standing um, mm-hmm. socially, I guess, as well as politically. So that's interesting. I, I also like their story because it's almost like if they'd been different people, it could have been a great romantic story. You know, <laughs> her husband ends up dead at the end. They could have totally gotten married and been together, <laughs> you know, but they're both just basically shitholes. So <laughs> it just didn't happen. They were like, wait, actually, we don't want to spend this much time together. Yeah, there's a hint that Mrs. Coulter um, uses sex as like uh, like some way of manipulating people. So maybe there was not a genuine interest in Asriel, uh, but there's not really evidence one way or the other at this point in the story about that. But like, it just is mentioned casually that like the best dancer in town, should I take him up now? Right. Um, yeah. 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 And that and Lyra so, didn't like, really know what she meant. Yeah. Right. But like, we know what she means. And it's like, so sex is like um, a social tool for her. It's not that like, Oh, he's really interesting and sweet. And like, I've, or like I'm interested in him in any way. It's like, oh, this person is popular, and this is a tool that I have to exploit that popularity. Mm-hmm. Like it's very calculated, and so maybe the same thing happened with Azrael. We like, but we don't know. Although she might have put a damper on that when she was married. We don't know. Oh well, yeah, true. Maybe that. Yeah, maybe they just were into each other. Now we're just speculating. Yeah. What do demons do while humans have sex? We actually get to see this. Oh, oh my God. <laughs> okay. Or at least, like, we don't, it's just before sex I would see. happen that we, we get to see. Okay. It's a children's book, so of course. Right. Um, speaking of, did we want to talk about that brief mention of a character who had the same sex demon? Yeah, this is interesting. Oh, yeah. I think. And it's just like a passing thing that Lyra says that he was one of those rare people who has a demon that is the same, uh, the same sex as he is. And I remember some of the earlier times that I've read this book before you reminded me about the Twitter thing. I thought that this was like an in-world support of trans people. So based on my experience of the mid 90s, mm-hmm. I'm going to go ahead and say that like, I think 
think that Pullman probably meant it as like an in-world support of gay people, but not trans people. Like, I can, I don't, yeah. I don't think trans people were on the radar. I think he was just thinking, you know, like if your demon is kind of like an ideal companion in some way or like mm-hmm. a compliment to you. And so for most people, that's like the opposite sex. But for some people, that like perfect compliment to them is the same sex. I think that's how I interpreted it when I first read the books in the 90s. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Well, there just like weren't a lot what? of out trans people. That's fair. At that time. Last time when I talked about the Jungian anima, like that is always um, the opposite gender from you. And um, I talked about Freud. Freud believed like in your sexual development that everyone starts off as bisexual. Like you're just a human being is just inherently bisexual. And then the degree to which you become more heterosexual has to do with that ego ideal that as so if you're a girl and you idolize your mother in order to get the affection of your father, you will become more heterosexual because of that idealization. But if you idolized the father, uh, like if you try to become like the father, then you will become more homosexual. Uh, and then this would be reflected in your Jungian anima as being the same sex as you. Although in this world, the, the demons are like, they, while they change their form, they don't change their sex mm-hmm. during development. So I don't know if that framework applies it seems more like what pullman is i agree with anya that this seems like in support of gay people and it would seem to be in support of the idea that your sexuality is intrinsic to your identity and also that bisexual people can't exist unless you could have multiple demons right or like yeah some kind of fluid demon yeah in some way i also think that making like having this series where he is saying that there is intrinsically a part of you, a part of your soul that is the opposite gender of you. That seems very heteronormative now because like all the men have female demons and all the women have male demons. And it, it's just, it does seem kind of boring and heteronormative now. But at the time, telling men that they have a part of them that is a woman and vice versa, I think was very out of the box. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Young got in trouble for this idea, too, that there's like a part of your personality that is the opposite gender of you that is like in you and in dialogue with you. And the degree to which you are comfortable with that or uncomfortable causes you like massive psychological problems in the Jungian framework. Mm -hmm. Like if you can reconcile yourself to your anima, like your life is much better in terms of like your ability to channel those energies that are the opposite gender of you but of course like all of that stuff is bullshit because like those none of that stuff is actually gendered you know it's so weird that all of what well that a lot of what young said was was bs because so much of it just makes sense to me i don't know oh no i agree i'm huge into young like i love young i just have to constantly remind myself like the same way that i do when i study religions i'm like yeah this is it's all wrong it's not right (laughs) So, I don't know, interesting, it I it's, sucks that we don't learn any more about any characters with same-sex demons. Yeah. I like the idea of it. 
Mm-hmm. And I'd like to know what he was trying to do there. But probably, again, probably in support of gay people. Yeah. So one thing that I did want to bring up in this batch of chapters was, I think, the dynamic between Lyra and Pan here is kind of interesting, especially if you compare it to when we first meet them and she's hiding in the wardrobe. I think to some extent they've kind of switched roles and that when we first meet them in the wardrobe, um, like Pan is the one who's wants to be super like safe and conservative and just like go with the status quo. And Lyra wants to do like the ballsy thing to be gender normative or whatever. <laughs> and then once there, Lyra's hanging out with Miss Coulter, she's the one who's like, oh no, let's just go with the flow. Uh, do the status quo, like, do what we're supposed to be doing, like, don't break any rules. And Pan is the one who's like, no, like, (laughs) uh, we need to take action and, like, do this thing and, like, do the more transgressive, like, adventure thing of running away. But also on some level, like, Lyra is always the one who's attracted by the shiny object. It's just whether that shiny object is her dad or her mom. And Pan is always the one who's like, no, let's get the fuck out. (laughs) So, like, it's interesting, I think, in the way that, like, in some sense, like, their roles are kind of flipped, but also they're still kind of the same. I don't know if that makes sense. It's so difficult to talk about this because they are the same person. But they do have just, like, they have conversations. It isn't just them agreeing with each other. So it it's... Because you say that like their roles are reversed, and in my mind, I'm like, it's all just Lyra. This is what Lyra is thinking and feeling. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess maybe I'm taking the demons too literally, and like not fully conceiving of them as like different parts of the same soul or whatever. But um, yeah, I guess she's just kind of like externalizing different parts of herself, like yeah. whatever part of her that she is wanting to ignore and is not letting itself be ignored. Hmm. That's a good way of saying it. Yeah, he's kind of expressing the unconscious feelings that she has, right? Like, mm-hmm. I guess that's why I go straight to, to the anima. And then, like, in this part, like I said, the ego ideal, or she's like, I want to be like Mrs. Coulter, so I don't want to leave. And Pan is like, yo, we're going to get killed. Like, she's turning us into the next kidnapper. Like, well, we even gotta before get out that, of here. Well, even before that, when he's just like, she's making a pet of us. She's never going to take us north. When are right. we going to run away? Yeah. Like, he, he says that. When are we going to run away? And Lyra's just like, we're not. We're happy here. Because underneath everything, yeah. Lyra knows. Like, that's her unconscious. Like, you know you're going to go. You know you're not going to get what you want. Mm-hmm. But So yeah. I, I think of it less as like a role reversal or whatever. And just as like an interesting look into... Lyra's thought process because even when she was the most in love with Mrs. Coulter there was a part of her saying what what are we doing this is boring (laughs) Mm -hmm. or like we're clearly being manipulated yeah 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 I the demons are so interesting it's like just it's like a yeah that thing that you made me realize earlier that this is the thing that we've been asking for with these like adaptations it's your interiority just like in a fur coat yeah just like talking and saying everything which is kind of a good transition into the other thing that i wanted to talk about which is like 
it must be so awkward to like have your demon be betraying your feelings all the time like in social situations you know like does everyone i mean so there's like that whole like stigma and also just like intuitive feeling that you would like never touch a person's demon but like you can see what they're doing and you can kind of like intuit you know someone's emotional state just based on like what their demon is doing is it the kind of thing where you know it's like if someone has a crush on you and comes up and their demon's like acting super weird you just have to pretend that you can't see it <laughs> like the golden monkey right yeah in the one part yeah where it like flips out because she says dust and yeah. mrs coulter like looks cool as a cucumber and the monkey looks like it got electrocuted yeah it it's an interesting point because I can never help but think about that because I'm a very private person and I don't like telling people about things or my life. Mm-hmm. And having this like part of you always on display to me sounds horrific and terrible. <laughs> <laughs> but at the same time, if you were raised in that culture, you wouldn't think of it that way. Yeah. You yeah, know, it would normal. just be it would just be normal. And but if you were still grew up to be somebody well, like we see Lyra when she doesn't want to give away her emotions, Pan becomes something small and easy to hide. Like a, yeah, a moth or something. Yeah. Doesn't have a lot of facial features. Yeah. It so, made me wonder if people do have insects for demons. We never see that. They all mm, seem we to do. be well, we mammals do or avians. We see insects okay. later. Okay. And we even saw Lord Boreal has a snake. That's, <laughs> That's like. Oh, right. Yeah. You know how like all of the servants have. Uh, dog demons, all of the spies have insect demons because you just like can't see. <laughs> but then I guess that even that would give them away. So he has like a who had a uh, one of, I want to say Fink, but that's not right. Uh, 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 it talked and told them yeah, the like guy, while he was dying. The guy that we saw die and oh, he like, it was like told a his whole story or something. A ferret. That's yeah. what it was. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe if you get a ferret, you're a spy. Ah, like, oh, damn, I'm a spy. <laughs> Well, in this world, it would be like, oh, great, I'm a spy. Yes, you have revealed my life to me. <laughs> right, right. I find demons very, very interesting, and I could talk about them for hours. So let's just... So there was a part, you were talking about John Fah's, uh long story earlier, and a, a part of that was like, oh, this is the trolley problem, when he's trying to explain to Lyra like how hard it is for the master of Jordan College to do his job, because he's like... He's got a no matter what he does, like it's a dangerous thing. He's going to let somebody down. So he always has to think about what's best for the college. And like just his entire long description, I was like, oh, that's the trolley problem. I didn't think about it in quite that way, but that makes a lot of sense. And so like him poisoning Lord Asriel was basically him pulling the switch to divert it from the five person track to the one person track. Yeah. Basically, that's what John Foss seems to think anyway. So that's the trolley problem. Yeah, I think guess that makes me think a little bit better about him for that. No, it totally you know helps. that he wasn't just like, I don't want to give Azrael money, so let's poison him. It was much more political. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's thinking of what's best for the most people. <laughs> yeah, so I was just like, oh, that's interesting. And And of course, he can't use the trolley problem because that hasn't been invented in his world because the trolley problem was invented by a woman, Philippa Foot, and uh women don't uh aren't allowed to think deeply in this world and so can't come up with the most useful moral framework ever. I don't disagree with you here. 
Um, but also like they don't have electric trolleys. <laughs> oh, true too. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> so just just throwing that one out there. <laughs> well, it can be a train switch. It doesn't have to be electric. I guess. I guess. You mean an ambaric trolley? <laughs> yes, of course. They have chthonic uh, trains. It could be. It could be the Zeppelin problem. The Zeppelin problem. <laughs> <laughs> oh, getting squished by Zeppelins. That sounds like being hugged or something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So thanks for hanging out with us. Next time we'll be talking about chapters 10 through 13. If you like our show, please take the time to leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. I'm Anya, and you can follow me on Twitter at Strangely Literal. That's Strangely, then L-I-T-E-R-L. I'm Caitlin, and you can follow me on Twitter at Inferior Caitlin. Follow the show on Twitter at M-O-T-Pod. Need more than 280 characters to speak your mind? Send us an email to contact at hollowedgroundmedia.com. And uh, don't forget to meet your murderer dad with some clean clothes. <laughs>